Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And now for your environmental headlines. In national rankings, Indiana often ends up in the middle of the pack. U.S. News and World Report places the 17th most populous state in the Union in pretty much average range in economy, education, health care, crime, infrastructure, and fiscal stability. But there's one area where Indiana is number one. The Northwest Indiana Times reports the Hoosier State leads the nation in the release of toxic chemicals. According to the Environmental Protection Agency's recently released Toxic Releases Inventory, the EPA report released in January found Indiana ranked number one in toxic releases per square mile out of the 50 states, five U.S. territories, and the District of Columbia. In 2019, the most recent year for which data was available, Indiana had 881 toxic release inventory facilities with four of the biggest producers of toxic chemicals located in northwest Indiana, according to the EPA. Industrial facilities across Indiana released or disposed of 123 million pounds of chemicals that could be harmful to people or the environment. The Environmental Protection Agency has come up with a plan to clean up toxic PCE, or perchloroethylene, and TCE, or trichloroethylene, in Martinsville, the same chemicals suspected of causing rare childhood cancers in Franklin. The agency suspects the water pollution at the Martinsville Superfund site mostly came from a local laundry and dry cleaning business in the 1980s. Multiple residents in Martinsville have been diagnosed with rare stomach cancers and other illnesses. The EPA wants to inject chemicals into the groundwater to help break down the toxic PCE and TCE. Tom Wallace is a retired environmental engineer and the founder of the Martinsville, Indiana Superfund Site Association. He said the EPA's water cleanup plan is close to what the city and its residents wanted, but he'd prefer something quicker and hopes the agency will keep an open mind. Quote, it is effective, but it's longer term. We're talking 17 to 30 years in many cases. And looking at some of the plume stop things, they've done it in two years or less, end quote, Wallace said. Plume stop is what's being used to clean Franklin's groundwater. Wallace said it's been about 30 years since the contamination happened. In that time, an entire generation in Martinsville has been exposed to these harmful chemicals. His group is working with Purdue University researchers to study how exposure to PCE specifically might be affecting the city's children, especially their ability to learn. 
The EPA also hopes to address harmful vapors that could be seeping into homes and businesses from the soil. But that's been a challenge. Inside Indiana Business reports an Indiana-based solar energy company has opened a new headquarters and warehouse in Carroll County, more than doubling the space it had in Kokomo. Green Alternatives Incorporated says it invested $300,000 to relocate its main facilities to Flora. The company says it has added two more people to its staff and is planning for further growth. Green Alternatives says it will keep a sales office in Kokomo. Quote, with many of our crew coming from the Lafayette area and customers throughout north central Indiana, Flora was a great place to reinvest in our company, end quote, said a spokesman for Green Alternatives. The company serves the agricultural, commercial, and residential markets. Green Alternatives says it is filling internships from students in the Ivy Tech Renewable Energy Program. Northern Indiana Public Service Company, or NIPSCO, and the North American subsidiary of the Spanish firm EDP Renewables recently announced a power purchase agreement and a build and transfer agreement for two renewable energy projects, one wind and one solar, in White County. The power purchase agreement will apply to the 204-megawatt Indiana Crosswords II wind farm, planned for a site in White County. EDP Renewables previously announced the agreement on March 1st. NIPSCO will purchase the full capacity of power at the project, which the companies expect to become operational in 2023. The build and transfer agreement will allow for the construction of the 200-megawatt Indiana Crossroads Solar Park in White County, which is anticipated to become operational in 2022. NIPSCO will enter into a joint venture once construction is complete. EDP Renewables already has substantial operational capacity in Indiana, which will double when projects under construction are complete, producing enough energy to power the equivalent of more than 410,000 average Indiana homes. Tippecanoe County commissioners are taking action against a bill regulating solar and wind farms in Indiana. House Bill 1381 sets default standards for installation. Tippecanoe County restricts wind farms and recently rolled out regulations on solar farms. Commissioner Tom Murtaugh and the two other county commissioners wrote a letter to local lawmakers. In it, the bill is called, quote, an assault on local home rule, end quote. Bill co-author State Representative Sharon Negele says she's willing to work with Tippecanoe County leaders. Quote, some of the language that I know is being discussed right now has to do with renewable zones and working with the counties and trying to figure out, you know, is there an area in your county that could be designated as a renewable zone, end quote, Nicholas said. Murtaugh argued the bill would hurt economic development. He said local elected officials should be setting the standards. The reason for HB 1381 is the multitude of requirements by local officials. Some communities want setbacks to be 2,300 feet from the nearest home. Another county requires 1,000 feet. In four counties, wind turbines are not permitted. In some communities, every homeowner within five miles of a turbine has to be contacted. 
A common setback is a wind turbine 492.1 feet away from any nearby obstruction and at a height such that the bottom of the rotor blades will be 29.5 feet above obstructions, including buildings and trees. Opponents of a wetland deregulation bill in Indiana are amplifying their pleas to lawmakers to reject the measure, the Public News Service reports. More than 80 groups signed a letter sent to Governor Eric Holcomb and state lawmakers yesterday that offered policy alternatives to provisions in Senate Bill 389 that would eliminate state wetland protections established in 2003. John Ketzenberger, Director of Government Relations for the Nature Conservancy in Indiana, noted there is a reason that Indiana is one of just eight states with its own wetland regulations. Indiana is fortunate to be in a water-rich environment, Ketzenberger explained. Quote, we have lots of wetlands. These are a sign of our health in terms of the environment. We should protect these things, end quote. Supporters, including housing and land development groups, argue that current relations are onerous and expensive. Indiana has just 15% of its historic wetlands left, and Senate Bill 389 would impact 80% of what remains that are not federally protected. A House committee could vote early next week on the legislation. Ketzenberger added that the Indiana Department of Environmental Management has been open to a dialogue with concerned groups, but also contended that negotiations on the bill haven't included factual input from experts who fully understand how wetlands function. Wetlands provide water purification, critical wildlife habitat, and flood protection. Nearly 30,000 people have signed an online petition calling for Indiana's wetlands to be saved. Between 2016 and 2020, the U.S. military quietly incinerated over 20 million pounds of chemicals called aqueous firefighting foam in poor communities around the country. Firefighting foam is, by design, a powerful flame retardant and engineered to put out fires, so it's almost unimaginable that the military attempted to destroy it through burning. The foam contains perchloroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl chemicals, known as PFAS and forever chemicals because they don't break down in the environment or human body. They're known to cause various cancers, developmental disorders, immune system damage, and infertility. Environmental Justice Faculty at Vermont's Bennington College Center for the Advancement of Public Action uncovered the scheme. The military, in an attempt to dispose of the material, merely, quote, redistributed the foam problem into poor and working-class neighborhoods, end quote, said David Bond, associate director of the center. Thirty-five percent of the known shipments of foam was incinerated at the Norlite Hazardous Waste Incinerator in Cohoes, New York. The incinerator is located in a heavily populated urban community with a public housing complex less than 400 feet away. Like all the other hazardous waste incinerators used in the project, the Norlite constantly violates environmental laws. According to the Guardian, quote, as the military was 
sending the foam to incinerators around the country, the EPA, state regulators, and university scientists all warned that subjecting it to extremely high temperatures would likely conjure up a witch's brew of fluorinated toxins, that existing smokestack technologies were insufficient to monitor poisonous emissions, let alone capture them, and that dangerous chemicals might rain down on surrounding communities, end quote. Over the last five years, 60 private banks have together poured $2 billion a day into fueling the climate crisis by financing the fossil fuel industry. According to Stop the Money Pipeline's 12th annual Banking on Climate Crisis report, translated into how much the bank spent since 2015, that amount is $3.8 trillion that the 60 banks have invested in fossil fuels. The report reveals that the U.S.'s largest banks are doing the most damage to the climate. Since the Paris Accord on the climate was signed, J.P. Morgan Chase has lent $317 billion to fossil-fueled companies, 33% more than any other bank. Even during the pandemic year of 2020, banks lent more money to fossil fuel development than they did in 2016, the first year after the Paris Accord. The four largest funders of fossil fuels are all U.S. banks. Chase, Bank of America, Citibank, and Wells Fargo alone have poured a trillion dollars into the fossil fuel industry since the signing of the Paris Accord. A case study in the report is Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline, under construction and the subject of spirited grassroots opposition. Though Chase Bank is the world's largest funder of fossil fuels and finances the pipeline, at least 28 other banks are providing over $12.9 billion in loans to Enbridge for Line 3. The Detroit Free Press reports that the University of Michigan will divest its multi-billion dollar endowment from fossil fuels as part of a push to have a net zero carbon investment portfolio. The university's Board of Regents adopted the measure recently. UM becomes the first public university to adopt such a pledge. UM's endowment is about $14 billion. The move by the university means the university will not invest in companies that are primarily engaged in oil reserves, oil extraction, or thermal coal extraction. The university will not directly invest in companies that are the largest contributors to greenhouse gases, currently defined as the top 100 coal and top 100 oil and gas publicly traded reserve holders, as identified on the Carbon Underground 200 list. The university will shift its natural resources investment focus toward renewable energy investments. The university is making a commitment to reduce all greenhouse gas emissions from the entire $13 billion investment portfolio to net zero by 2050, which aligns the university with the deadline set by the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Indiana students have called for the cessation of investment in fossil fuels for years without success. Here is the latest statement by the students. Quote, the students of Indiana University Bloomington have called for the IU Foundation to divest its endowment from investments in the top 200 fossil fuel companies within five years. End quote. 
The Build Green Act, which stands for the Better Utilizing Investments to Leverage Development and Generating Renewable Energy to Electrify the Nation's Infrastructure and Jobs Act, is an enterprising piece of legislation that would invest $500 billion over 10 years in state, local, and tribal projects to stimulate the transition to all-electric public transportation. It would reduce climate-damaging greenhouse gas emissions and health-threatening pollution while expanding clean mass transit and creating up to 1 million new good-paying union jobs. Democratic Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, plus Representatives Andrew Levin and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, introduced the bill in Congress. Senator Warren said of the bill, quote, It will make the big federal investments necessary to transform our country's transportation system, confront the racial and economic inequality embedded in our fossil fuel economy, and achieve the ambitious targets for 100% clean energy in America, end quote. Transportation is responsible for about 29% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, so electrifying transportation and ensuring that it's powered by 100% green energy means significant progress in decreasing emissions. Climate change poses significant dangers to global food supplies as rising temperatures make storage more difficult, the Associated Press reports. Food around the world is stored outside after harvest before processing, but rising temperatures and other altered weather patterns threaten to drive prices higher as more food is lost and producers are forced to install costly equipment to protect food stores. For generations, Brian Sackett's family has farmed potatoes in Michigan that are made into chips found on grocery shelves in most of the eastern U.S. About 25% of the nation's potato ships get their start in Michigan, where reliably cool air during September harvest and late spring have been ideal for crop storage. That's a big reason why the state produces more chipping potatoes than any other. But with temperatures edging higher, Sackett had to buy several small refrigeration units for his sprawling warehouses. Last year, he paid $125,000 for a bigger one. It's expensive to operate, but beats having his potatoes rot. The annual period in which outdoor air in the region is cool enough to store potatoes will likely drop by as much as 17 days in the next 30 years. Quote, our good Fresh, cool air is getting less all the time, end quote, Sackett said. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, searched for so-called mystery chemicals in blood samples from women during labor and delivery and from umbilical cords after birth. Of the 109 industrial chemicals they detected, 55 had never before been found in humans, and 42 were mystery chemicals the researchers couldn't trace back to any definite sources. According to Environmental Health News, quote, The study builds on evidence that a lack of industry transparency is exposing people to a cocktail of chemicals with unknown health consequences, end quote. The research team found known harmful chemicals, including a class called PFAS, deemed forever chemicals because they don't break down in the environment or the human body. 
They can cause developmental and immunological health problems and appear in such products as stain and water-resistant clothing, non-stick pots and pans, fire-fighting foam, carpets, and furniture. The team also found organophosphate fire retardants, which can disrupt the endocrine system and damage reproduction. Furniture, building insulation, carpets, and electronics contain them. The 42 mystery chemicals the researchers found are of special concern because their risks are unknown. Exposures to unknown chemicals are ubiquitous. Last year, scientists performed a comprehensive chemical inventory and found that 350,000 chemicals were registered for use commercially. Almost a third couldn't be identified conclusively. Public transit offers a simple way for cities to lower greenhouse gas emissions, but the pandemic has pushed ridership and revenue off a cliff in many big systems, as reported by the New York Times. On the London Underground, Piccadilly Circus Station is nearly vacant on a weekday morning, while the Delhi Metro is ferrying fewer than half of the riders it used to. In Rio, unpaid bus drivers have gone on strike. New York City's subway traffic is just a third of what it was before the pandemic. A year into the coronavirus pandemic, public transit is hanging by a thread in many cities around the world. Riders remain at home or remain fearful of boarding buses and trains. Without their fares, public transit revenues have fallen precipitously. In some places, service has been cut. In others, fares have gone up and transit workers are facing the prospect of layoffs. That's a disaster for the world's ability to address that other global crisis, climate change. Public transit offers a relatively simple way for cities to lower their greenhouse gas emissions, not to mention a way to improve air quality, noise, and congestion. By the end of last year, 211 million Americans, disproportionately people of color, had to deal with the threat of losing access to running water during the COVID-19 pandemic. Because there wasn't a national moratorium on water shutoffs, nearly half a million cases of COVID infections weren't avoided, and at least 9,000 lives were lost. Millions of Americans, during the spread of the highly contagious virus, were unable to wash their hands to prevent acquiring the disease. Those were the findings of a study by Cornell University and the environmental organization Food and Water Watch. While many utilities and states suspended water disconnections for overdue bills for a long time to make sure people had running water, others had suspensions that they let expire after a few months, and Congress neglected to enact a national moratorium. If states had suspended water disconnections throughout the country, the studies determined that COVID cases might have been reduced by 4% and deaths by 5.5% in the 41 states without a full moratorium. Both New York and Michigan have state moratoriums that are due to expire at the end of March. Failure to uphold the bans would leave another 27 million people under threat of losing their water because of unpaid bills. Meanwhile, health experts' concerns about a possible third wave of the virus are growing, with millions of people unable to practice good hygiene because of the loss of running water.
New research published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters found that the climate crisis is making summers hotter and longer and decreasing the lengths of the three other seasons. As a result, summers in the northern hemisphere could last almost six months by the end of the century if global heating continues apace. Climate scientist Scott Sheridan from Kent State University, who was not involved in the study, said, quote, Shifting seasons can wreak a lot more havoc than you think when you recognize all the systems that are tuned to timing of the seasons, end quote. Changes in the Earth's seasons pose serious risks for the environment and human health. Malaria mosquitoes could live longer and at higher altitudes, for one thing. Further, the changes in the season could throw other living things off. For example, flowers could bloom before bees are present to pollinate them. The implications for food production could be profound. A so-called false spring in March nine years ago caused vegetation to emerge out of dormancy weeks ahead of schedule, and then temperatures dropped in April. As a result, Michigan lost large amounts of its cherry crop, and the South lost much of its peach crop. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. Spring Mill State Park will have an early riser hike on Friday, April 2nd from 8 to 9 a.m. Meet Tony at the Spring Mill Inn front porch for a one-mile hike on trails one and four. If you don't like to get up early, then enjoy a sunset hike on the 2nd from 7 to 8 p.m. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center for the evening hike. The Indiana Audubon Society is having a little fun with the March Madness Tournament being held in Indiana this year with a March Migration Madness Bracket Competition. To participate, you have to go to the Indiana Audubon Facebook page and complete your bracket choices. The final matchup for the Chirpionship will begin on Saturday, April 3rd. Enjoy Easter Sunday, April 4th at McCormick's Creek State Park from 10.30 to 11 a.m. to help feed the turtles. Turtle feeding at the Canyon Inn takes place weekly. Learn why wild turtles should stay in the wild and the kinds of turtles found at McCormick's Creek. National Walk Week takes place from Monday, April 5th to Sunday, April 11th. Spring Mill State Park will be offering guided hikes on all of the trails during the week. Each day will feature a different trail. Contact Sherry Belt at sbelt at dnr.in.gov or call 812-849-3534 for a schedule of hikes. The Indiana Audubon Society will host a virtual birdsong ID workshop on Sunday, April 11th from 3 to 4 p.m. The workshop will help you identify birds by sound and give you tips on how to distinguish different songs. Registration is required at indianaaudubon.org events. For questions regarding this event, email Sam Warren at swarren at indianaaudubon.org. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water 
solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. David Lyman wrote the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 